This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. Hey guys, welcome to Beltway Banthas, your source for Star Wars and politics news and analysis coming from the hive of scum and villainy that is America's capital, Washington, D.C., This is your co-host Suara here, and this week you'll be listening to my interview with Washington Post columnist, humorist, and blogger on the Compost blog, Alexandra Petri. We basically discuss Star Wars, uh, her comedy, uh, satire, politics, political parallels between Star Wars and the real world, and a bunch of other topics. This was a really fun conversation. It, uh, you know, was real. It felt really intellectual, but also really funny. And Alexander has a really great way of engaging you. I was laughing so many times throughout the interview, as you guys will probably hear. And, uh, you know, we discussed actually some very serious topics as well. You know, something else we discussed, for example, was her feminism and how Star Wars helped inspire that. We talked about Carrie Fisher. We talked about her portrayal as Princess Leia. We talked about Rey and what she means for the franchise and Jyn Erso. Yeah, so this was like a really multi-layered, varied conversation that I think you all of you guys are going to really enjoy. Just to let you guys know, this is our last interview for a little, just a little while. We'll have one coming at you guys before you know it, but life is a little busy right now with work and such. I'm sure many of you can relate. Steven and I lead really busy lives, but don't worry, we'll have another interview for you soon. All right, well, this is it. My interview with Washington Post columnist Alexandra Petri. I hope you guys enjoy and may the force be with you, always. Hello. And welcome to Beltway Banthas. This is one of your co-hosts, Suara Saleh, with my guest, Alexandra Petri of the Washington Post. How are you doing today, Miss P- Miss Petri or Alexandra? Alexandra, yeah. I'm terrific. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on to here. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to ask you a bit about your background as a Star Wars fan and how you got into Washington Post and a bunch of other stuff. But first off, tell me how your fandom got started. Oh, man. Well, I think my dad was a big fan. And so as soon as I hit, I think it was 1997 when the special edition came out. And they, it was like March of that year. And so I was still like eight, just about to turn nine. And I, uh, they had a in rep showing of Space Jam and the original yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. And first we went on a night when they were showing Space Jam and he's like, no, 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 we got to come back. So we came back the next night, saw Star Wars and I was immediately hooked. I was just like, that was, yeah. Yeah. So you saw episode four first yes. and then five and yeah, six. Yeah, four, five, and- six. Oh. And like that year I got like a Darth Vader uh, beach towel as like my big, <laughs> like that was the Christmas present I really wanted. I was like sleeping with it being like, yeah, I got my Darth Vader beach towel. That, um, that's amazing. So what was your favorite film from the start, do you think? I mean, Empire, which obviously, but I'm always like, without the original, we wouldn't have any of this. So maybe I should give it credit. And then I'm like, without Jedi to give you a happy ending, would Empire be as meaningful? And so I'm always like, just the trilogy, one and indivisible, like the holy trinity of Star Wars movies. It really is the holy trinity. I I love that analogy. So how did you... um, to come across the prequels. What do you think of those? Oh, I remember the prequels. I was like, it was funny because I'm always like, no, I'm like, I'm all about the original Star Wars. And the thing was, that was what I watched over and over again. I had the gold box of the DVDs Mm -hmm. and I would just watch them and watch them. And my parents made me sign a, um, 
Not the DVDs, the VHSs. Wow, right. I'm showing my dating myself here. Oh, I remember those VHSs too. That's how I saw them at first as well. Yeah. In the mid nineties. Yeah, no, they had like just good cover art and uh, but my parents, in order to buy a VCR player, they made me sign a contract that said I would not watch the tri trilogy more than 13 times per year. <laughs> uh, that was the condition of us getting a VCR. Uh, and so I really pushed against that. I'm like, come on, 13, that's like nothing. I know, right? But, like, you should be watching it every day. I mean, I would want to watch it every day. I pretty much was. Like, during the summers, I was just sort of sitting there. My mother would be like, you should go outdoors at one point. And I'm like, no, not necessary. Oh. I'm on indoor right now. So what are your thoughts on episode seven and then Rogue One? I really liked episode seven. I thought, on the one hand, J.J. Abrams was pandering to Star Wars fans by giving us all the things we want and expect from a Star Wars movie. On the other hand, why are we complaining about the fact that he was pandering to Star Wars fans by giving us all the things we want and expect from a Star Wars movie? I know, right? Episode 7 is one of my favorites of all time, and I recognize it pays a lot of homage to Episode 4, but it's still its own entity at the end of the day. Yeah. Plus, Rey is amazing. No, I really like Rey, and I know there's... I, I, I've conversed with folks who are like, she's a total Mary Sue, but I don't think... Like, just because there's a female... Like, you can't be a Mary Sue in your own story. I'm sorry. Like, yes. Mary Sue's are something when you're inserted into somebody else's story and you take it over and you create a problem. And unless people are like, Star Wars is my story. That's, <laughs> like, no, she's a character in her own right. We see her overcoming things and growing, and I, I don't think it holds water. Right. But I also just... I thought Chewbacca did some of his best work of the series in uh, Force Awakens. I, I absolutely agree. It was a very nuanced yeah. performance. Yeah. It was very, you know, those growls, those purrs, those... Bones. Yeah, he's just such an eloquent... You can tell if he's upset. You can tell, it, like, what he's saying. And he's complaining about the cold. I don't know. He was just a thoughtful and key presence. And it was the yeah. only thing somebody else who could understand him, even though everyone's like, oh, come on, and she understands Wookiees. Come on. What's she been doing on that island? Just sitting there with Rosetta Stone, right. I assume. Okay. So just let you know, it's called... The language is called Shiri Wook. Shiri Wook. Yeah. Oh, see, this is going to be fun because you're going to like uncover exactly to what extent my knowledge extends, and then the the bar falls. So I can be like, oh, it's Salacious P. Crumb. But if you ask me, like, what is the name of the monk guy with the brain who's wandering <laughs> around in Jabba's palace? I cannot, off the top of my head, remember the name of the monk. I, I don't know that one either. So we're at the same level there. So yeah, tell me more about your thoughts on Rogue One as well. I really liked Rogue One because it wasn't what you typically expect from a Star Wars movie. It was. Hey, everyone's gonna die at the end. That's crazy. Spoiler alert. But no, so I feel like there's two things that you have as a Star Wars fan when you watch a Star Wars movie where you're like, this is everything that I want, and it's a world that I love going to and visiting and like seeing the Jedi and seeing the smugglers. But you also start to formulate a series of questions about what else you'd like to see told in that world. And you wonder, hey, what is life like for just smugglers? What's life like for people who don't have force powers? And so far, the Star Wars series hasn't answered any of those questions except in material like the books or video games. And so having a whole movie that was, hey, no Jedi in this movie. What's going to happen? Hey, like, Here's an imperial functionary who just wants to build his dang Death Star. Let the man build his right. Death Star. Right. And, and that was great. I loved it. Yeah. It's about um, the average people in the Alliance. It's about imperial officers. It's about the people that are more in the background in the, tri in the trilogy films. Yes. Yeah. 
So yeah, I really appreciated that part as well. It was uh, neat seeing like the origin story for the disc <laughs> that you have put in R2-D2. Although I do worry that every single sort of interstitial moment and offhand reference is suddenly going to get its own spinoff. Oh yeah. Like we're going to spend <laughs> three hours watching Padme and Paolo, their legislative youth program. So did you see that uh, uh, Natalie Portman said she's open to coming back to Star Wars? Oh no. I mean, hooray, but yeah. what story would that be to tell? Well, I would love to see something like that. Like, not the youth legislative program, but still, as a legislator, like her dealing yes. with Palpatine in the delegation of 2000 against his uh, increasing authoritarianism. That's true. I actually would watch the sort of, how do we get this rebellion started movie. Exactly. Because yeah. they, they cut all that stuff. It was supposed to be like Mon Mothma and yeah. Padme were getting together and they were putting their foot down. Yeah. Like, there were deleted scenes in episode three, but they did get the same actress who played Mon Mothma in those scenes to play Mon Mothma in Rogue One. Oh, um, how cool. Yeah, I, I think it's Genevieve O'Reilly uh, who plays her. Um, this is an interesting question. Who's your favorite politician in Star Wars that <laughs> you've seen? I want to say Palpatine. I love that. Because he's the most efficient politician. Yes. Chancellor Valorum, I have no confidence in <laughs> Chancellor Valorum's leadership, frankly. Nor do I. Yeah. Like, none of us did. So we have a friend of the podcast, uh, Riley Blanton of the Star Wars Report, who told me at Star Wars Celebration in London that he sees uh, um, Chancellor Valorum in our real world just represented as Jeb Valorum. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Please clap. Please clap. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Not not for his uh, yeah like uh, downfall, but <laughs> yeah. Please <laughs> yeah, don't clap. Please clap. Um, so we are a Star Wars politics podcast. We look for the intersection between the two worlds, and I'm curious about um, your understanding of politics as you've grown up. I mean, what was it like growing up with a congressman for a father, for example? Well, I think it, one thing that a lot of folks coming to DC that their first image of it is, say, the West Wing, or it's House of Cards, or you have this very sort of Hollywoodified idea that if something's happening, it's because people are fundamentally competent. And I realize this sounds like I'm totally negging my dad and be like, he was totally incompetent, but he wasn't. The whole point was, right. he, he was very competent, but you could see that everyone behind the scenes was just sort of trying their best, and it wasn't that someone had like a massive chess game that they were playing out. It was a lot of people trying to do their best for their constituents and trying to you know, talk to people they didn't necessarily agree with and get good ideas through. At least that's sort of... And so it was weird then seeing all these sinister visions that were put up by, like, House of Cards where everyone's getting into their black limousines and sneaking away and making deals because that wasn't my experience of it at all. My experience was mostly just you spend a lot of time walking in parades and <laughs> then you go and you try to make a difference. Right. But I also think... I, I don't know to what extent... That continues to be the case, but I think everyone gets into it. For I mean, I think you just live your life, norm, like, quote, normally, as anyone else would, and your dad just happens to have a particular job, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, if I may say so, you seem like a very intelligent, well-rounded, worldly person, so, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> is that not the impression you want to give? No, yeah, what a terrible impression I've created. Um, no, I think, but it's also like any time you're growing up, you sort of, it takes you a while to realize that you're not having a universal experience and that like only the people in your family are having that particular experience. And then like suddenly you're like, Oh no, not everybody on the 4th of July dressed up as the founding fathers and pretended they were founding fathers and talked to each other like right. that. Is that not a thing other families did? <laughs> and... Yeah, exactly. 
Um, so how has Star Wars informed your politics growing up or what you understand about the political world at all? Well, I love watching the sort of Right before Force Awakens came out, there was this big flourishing of Star Wars content in sort of the political media. There was this whole hot take that, what if the Empire was right? And, you know, was the destruction of Alderaan morally justified? And I'm not saying that's responsible for the rise of Trump, because it's not solely responsible for the rise of Trump, nor is it actually responsible for the rise of Trump. But I, I do think, you know, the... It's been funny watching that argument being made by sort of serious-minded contrarians and the effect of taking... Like, I don't know that it actually had an effect, but it was sort of funny to watch that coincide. It was funny to see that correlate. In our latest episode, we actually... In our most recent episode, we actually discussed um, some of these imperial apologists who, yeah. like you said, said Aldr- the destruction of Aldron was justified and that the Empire was actually a truly benevolent dictatorship force because we didn't see any heinous actions in the films except the destruction of Alderaan. Yeah, which has been funny. I've had people seriously make the argument to me that it's like the Empire's burden to keep, like, (laughs) which a very Kipling-esque sort of phrase to use is keeping order in this galaxy. And I was... How did we get to there from, hey, we're going to put some obvious Nazi Nazi analogs in space so people will know that they are bad to, well, maybe they've got a point and we should hear them out. (laughs) I mean, this kind of... The Overton window of Star Wars. (laughs) I just think it's funny how, like, in the fictional world of Star Wars, there's Mm. been this increased acceptance of these Nazi types. And then in the real world where we live, it's like, well, maybe maybe the alt-right is just, like, the different right. (laughs) Maybe when they say these things, they mean... I don't know. It's, it's an interesting sort of. You always wonder how much fictional portrayals of things actually weigh yeah. into stuff. And I mean, I mean, when we just look at world history, all of these, you know, I'm not. I'm not saying that's the direction we're going in, but all of these uh, regimes started out with a certain maybe tolerance for ideas that were once considered controversial. Or do you ever think about that? About how that figures into it? Like this sort of different kind of open-mindedness. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do think about that a lot because my the whole sort of principle of free speech is that ideas should be allowed to fight each other mm-hmm. and that the best way of knowing what somebody's thinking is to allow them to say what they're thinking and then you can combat that instead of forcing them not to say it and then they go and act on it anyhow and then if you have an open battlefield of ideas. But if your idea is like certain people are impermissible, is that an idea that deserves debate? And is that an idea that you can counter with other ideas? Or is that just like a a morally flawed premise that isn't even an intellectual premise, but just sort of a moral failure? And that's, I think, an interesting question. Right. I'd actually like to tie this back into the empire because as a kid, I didn't fully understand that maybe because we didn't see so many other aliens in Star Wars, they were a human su- supremacist organization. Yeah. But as I got older and read more on Wikipedia and other analyses uh, online, it did make that direct parallel. Uh, did you get that the first time you saw the films? or after? Yeah, I didn't realize initially, but yeah, now, now the whole thing is, oh, the Empire's a human supremacist, and you could pretty much get it. And I did think like they had a unified aesthetic. Their aesthetic choices were always highly strong. <laughs> and... The Rebels had their cool jackets, but they had so many different jackets. And now, actually, with going back to Rogue One, it makes an interesting case that actually the Empire might be right argument in the Star Wars universe has a little more credence in terms of, well, the, 
the rebellion is such a big tent. You've mm -hmm. got people who are sort of total extremists and they've got like tentacle yeah. monsters and you're uh, putting, you know, Borgullet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Borgullet will know the truth. I, I personally didn't like that scene, but what you think? I mean, if there's anyone out there who's like, I, I came to Star Wars and the one thing I've been missing in the Star Wars franchise <laughs> was like, not enough tentacle action. Like, that's a valid position. I'm sure people on the internet have it. For sure. The internet loves tentacles. I assume, from no personal knowledge. But actually, from no personal knowledge. Usually I say that and it's like, actually. But no. Um, I, yeah, so you do wonder in the expanse of the rebellion. And I think some books explore, although I haven't read those books. Right. How do you deal with this weird coalition of people, all of whom are on different parts of the spectrum of peaceful to, I'm building a ship, let's go and fight, which I like to add more Raddus. Oh, he was great. He was so, so great. You know who's based on Winston Churchill? <laughs> of course he was based on Winston Churchill. That makes total sense. Of course he was. And he had the same waddle and everything. Yes, exactly. I wonder what Akbar was doing at the moment. I also wonder, are there different sort of groups within the Mon Calamari? So, like, Raddus had a more pronounced right. waddle, and he was sort of bluer, and then you've got the orange ones. Yeah. Is that, uh, are they different factions, one more powerful than another? Well, it's not, I don't know about more powerful than another, but reading the Rogue One Visual Dictionary, it says that Admiral Raddus is from a deeper part of the Mon Cal Ocean, where they oh. deal with more dangers and creatures, and um, Akbar and his fellow orangish colored compatriots are more towards the surface. Oh, right. They're from the literal more. zones. Exactly. <laughs> That's was, amazing. Yeah, this is ocean topography coming into play in Star Wars. It's awesome. That's great. I'm glad that they've thought of everything. I know, right? Like, there, there's such a great attention to detail that Gareth Edwards, you know, really uh, input into Rogue One. Um, so, you know, we've been talking a bit about some of these parallels and and sort of these think pieces, do you think we take them too seriously sometimes? Or well, I think in DC, everyone takes them entirely too seriously, well. and the rest of the country probably doesn't give them any credence at all. <laughs> I was making, so like, I think I was at lunch the other day, and I was making some sort of very specific references, a think piece about another think piece, and I was just like, this is the most navel-gazing conversation possible. So I think in, in DC... You can get this idea that everyone sees the same things that you do, that you see, and in fact, they're right. So I want to get back into talking about your fandom. What are some of your favorite Star Wars events you've been to, and some of your favorite cosplays? I watched this uh, MSNBC interview you were on when you were talking about Force Friday before the Force Awakens came out. Yeah, that was a lot of fun because. What I liked about it the most was all the people were there to be told what they were going to love in the next couple of months. Because all you get is the guy in the box, and you get his name, and you think, oh, who's this character going to be? I know that I want to put him on my mantelpiece, regardless of what he winds up doing. Which is why my friend went out, she bought a full Captain Phasma suit of armor. That's and, awesome. And Phasma turned out to have, like, seven lines. But, you know but she's, she's going to be back, yeah. And she's going to have more to do. In she better have more to do. She better have more to do. Because that's an investment. <laughs> <laughs> it's Wendell and Christie. Come yeah. on. Do you watch Game of Thrones, by the way? Yes. Yes, so good. Oh, terrific. I like that her one condition is like, I must appear in a suit of armor <laughs> that is shiny, <laughs> and I must, yeah. I mean, she was saying that what she loved about the role so much was that it's not about her physical features as a woman, but rather her overall presence, and, you know, that sort of um, mental uh, thing she could give to the role, you know, I yeah. think which is a pretty great stride. No, she, yeah, she and, like, Boba Fett and Darth Vader are just three characters where all you can do is see them and you're like, that person's cool. Exactly. Whoever that character is, whatever's under that helmet, I'm buying that 
action figure. You know, Boba Fett has been getting a lot of, I don't want to say hate, but ah, yeah, kind of he's been getting a lot of hate recently in the fandom as though I've been seeing people in groups and say, I don't want a Boba Fett film. Boba Fett is overrated. I'm just thinking, Boba Fett's awesome. I you would know, love a Boba Fett film. Yeah. No, you know what I don't want is a young Han Solo film. You don't want No, that. I don't want it. We you had a young it. Han Solo film and it was called Star Wars. Mm, I don't. I don't need okay. to see. I just, this is my continued fear that we're going to see him make the castle run in less than 12 parsecs. <laughs> and then every other casual thing is he's going to run into that bounty hunter that he later run in, runs into around Ord Mandel. And he's going to play a Saba game and he's going to lose or win the Falcon from Lando. And I can pretty much tell you without even having right. seen the movie what I feel like they'll need to think they're going to put in the movie. Right. And at a certain point, I want to see a young Lando movie where I only know one thing that he does and then I get to just watch him have adventures. Yeah, like get into more of those creative ideas. What was so great about Rogue One, which we touched upon, was that it showed you what was going on behind the scenes, these small things that were mentioned. And you're saying you would love to see uh, some of these other, you know, small things mentioned or implied be turned into films. Yeah, I, I would love them, but I also... <laughs> Like when they had a cameo from those two guys who hassle yeah. <laughs> Luke in the cantina. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you don't need to make every callback, Star Wars. We get it. Right. <laughs> We've all seen it 300 times, too. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so what are some of the uh, funniest moments you've seen in Star Wars? And what are the best and worst humor you've seen in the films? Like all of them. Ooh. Oh, I love the moment... I always crack up when Yoda's hitting R2-D2 with a stick, like, trying to convince him that he like doesn't know anything about technology. He's going, five, five, five. Can we agree for a second that that fight is phenomenally better than what we saw in episode two? Yeah, full applause, no matter what this does, the microphone. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Hands down. So much more meaningful. Best Yoda use. Yeah. Absolutely best. It's not more impressive. As the, what's his name? The Count Red Letter people. Media guy or, says, or Red Letter Media. Oh. the whole point of Yoda is that size doesn't matter. If you put him in a lightsaber battle, size obviously matters. <laughs> he can do less than his opponent can, and that's not the message of Yoda. The message of Yoda is size matters not. Exactly. Look at me. I love me my size, Drew. That was a great, I would love to do a segment if you just interview Yoda. Uh, yeah, just interview me as Yoda. <laughs> or, or, okay, um, Master Yoda, what do you think of our political situation right now? Oh, difficult to see the future is... Yes. <laughs> it is very difficult, Master Yoda. I wish you could assure me and tell me it would all be okay. Um, so I want to get into talking about your job as a satirist and columnist for Washington Post. First off, um, how did you get to WashPo? Well, basically, I, I interned there one summer and then I barnacled on and refused to leave <laughs> is the short version of it. Right. But... Because I, Originally, I wasn't certain what I wanted to do as a writer. I knew that I wanted to write for a living, and I knew that I wanted to do that in some way, and I'd grown up reading the posts and lo loved what it did. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like, from the comics page backwards, but still, growing up reading the post. And what, what were your favorite comics? Oh, man. So I was one of those people who didn't notice how bad Garfield was until, <laughs> like, college, and then I suddenly went back and I was like, there are no jokes in this. It's just a cat who, who right. likes a randomly selected food item but at the time I was like Garfield is comic genius and I had all the fat cat three packs I just <laughs> but I mean actually like in terms of comics that are in there I really like Pearls Before Swine because it's constant puns nice. and nice. how about you do you have a uh, 
Well, I, I didn't really grow up reading uh, like the uh, post comics or the um, doing the crosswords or anything like that. I was always more of a DC Star Wars fan, you know, like reading my comic books oh, or yeah. playing my games. Or I wish I, I wish growing up I was more um, culturally, politically minded like that. I don't know that like reading the like print comics is actually right. culturally or politically minded. It's this weird sort of oasis from the 1930s that has somehow been preserved intact. Like right. they still have Blondie and Blondie is this cartoon. I was looking at old newspapers from the 1950s and they had exactly the same comics in many cases. It was like Blondie, like Dagwood's going to work and his boss doesn't like it one bit. I, I, I guess I considered it quote cultured because they've been around for so long and are part of these major newspapers and, you know, are so in the zeitgeist. Like I wasn't into peanuts, for example, that much as a kid, but these are iconic, as you say, you say cartoons, uh, comics that, somehow are meant to be some sort of reflection on society and our values and stuff like that. But you I don't know. I feel like it's like saying that, that uh, like, but I also think the comic section is sort of a weird, like an appendix almost. I had my appendix removed so I could say that, um, there you go. but where like it comes with everyone and you're like, does this actually serve a purpose? Why is this included with everything? Like on the one hand, maybe it's important because it's still included with everything. But on the other hand, do we use it for anything? What's it actually doing there? Right. Sort of. But then, then again, whenever people try to cancel, like, Judge Morgan, the paper's flooded with letters to an extent that you wouldn't get if you were doing something that right. on the surface might have seemed more substantive. So right. people do care about it. Right. For sure. Absolutely. So um, as uh, you're working at The Post now during a very interesting political time, to say the least, I'm wondering how your job as a satirist has maybe changed or has adapted in any sort of way, especially in the past couple of years and especially the past couple of months? Well, I think at first there was a phase of a couple of weeks, and it still happens occasionally, where traditionally if you want to make fun of something, you'd sort of heighten it and everyone would say, oh, this is obviously silly. And you would do that and you'd say, well, President or President Trump, at the time candidate Trump was saying that he couldn't, that Judge Curiel couldn't, possibly yeah. rule on him because, you know, of his heritage. And I was saying, oh, next he'll say a woman can't possibly rule on it. And then that week his campaign said actually a woman could not also rule on this thing. And it was, I'm like, genuinely, did you, did you, I was making a joke, but you're not, you're saying the same thing. Like, why are you copying me, yeah. basically? And then with the inauguration, I was saying something about how, what if I wrote it out the way Trump seems to imagine it in his head? I love that, by and, the way. Oh, that thank was you. so great. But then it, Later when he was in front of the, I think in front of the CIA wall, he was saying, no, it wasn't the CIA wall, he was talking about his time talking at the CIA wall, and he was saying, I got the biggest standing ovation ever, it was bigger than when Peyton Manning won the Super Bowl, I think even, and I'm like, I use that analogy as well, this what? is... Do you think they're plagiarizing your stuff? I think reality <laughs> is plagiarizing it, <laughs> just in general, any, like all the dystopia, like everyone was buying... 1984 mm. because they're like it's reality plagiarizing this but at the same time it's sort of I don't know I, I think that's it's too easy to be like no it's you know, just taken from the dystopia books and putting it in the real <laughs> world but it is a lot more question of sort of 
just exaggerating is not carrying the same force that it used to, because it used to be like somebody would say, oh no, like I remember Michelle Bachman got John Wayne and John Wayne Gacy confused and everyone was like, this idiot, she knows nothing. We must shut down her campaign. And it was this whole thing. And now Donald Trump, he was talking about Frederick Douglass today and he said, oh, he was a guy who did a great job that's beginning to be recognized more and more. And he's the president and he's been saying things like Abraham Lincoln, he said he was a guy who did a very important thing, especially to do especially at that time, and that the thing he did would not have been possible 10 or 20 years ago, but then he did it. Like, that's pretty much verbatim what he said. I, I don't the, understand what he's even saying there. No one does. And that didn't stop him from getting elected. So just the idea of pointing out that someone said something ridiculous, that's a non-starter, it seems. So you have to figure out other ways of tackling it. So it's been a challenge. Uh-huh. Everyone's like, it's a great gift to satire and comedy, and it is very much not. I would rather working harder. Yeah, you'd rather, you know, be just taking some implications of things he's saying and extrapolate from there. But instead, you're presented with something you or Andy Borowitz or someone else would write. Yeah, or you sort of have to make the case for whatever you're saying, which is alarming in a lot of ways. So instead of saying, hey, obviously he said something that seems fairly ridiculous, you have to say, wouldn't... We agree with the premise that, hey, children aren't terrorists, right? And then you have to make that case, and that's That's unfortunate. Yeah, especially with this past week. I mean, yeah, we're uh, in for a very interesting four years, to say the least. But I honestly am looking forward to the work you're going to come out with, and I highly recommend our viewers to follow you at petri dishes and keep up with your blog on or your column on washington post as well like there's yeah. some really funny stuff on there it's mostly bobcat commentary <laughs> <laughs> yeah we were talking about the bobcat that escaped from the zoo today earlier <laughs> so um I, w- I watched a ted talk you gave once about feminism and i'm curious as to how much star wars has informed your feminism and how you think the film starting out, you know, obviously with Princess, now General Leia, um, how uh, progressive they were at the time and how they were during the prequels and now especially how progressive they are with Rey and her being the protagonist of the new franchise. So please tell us. Oh, yeah, about this is a fascinating question. Yeah. I think one of the neat things about the original trilogy is that Princess Leia is really a once in a lifetime type character in so many ways. And because that was just what I grew up with, and that was the female image I most often watched on in any medium, be it film or TV or whatever, that was the sort of image of what it was like to grow up and be a lady in the world that I had most often. I just thought, oh, it's like you're totally equal to everyone around you. You're the boss of people. And like you just show men your intellect and you wear clothes that cover every part of your body except for your hands and face for the vast majority of the films. And that's all you need to do because it's... It's great. You're set. It's just normal. You're just as good as anyone else, if not better. And then gradually having to sort of unlearn that over the course of consuming other media where, oh, it's just like, she's the girl one. She's the one in the pink. And she doesn't get to do her own stunts. And at the end, she has to fight another lady. And all of these things were Star Wars... She just does so much and is such a great character that I almost took for granted that we fixed all of these things. And so, like, with the prequels... 
I think one of the traps that media falls into a lot these days is the idea of this like strong female character where it's like, it's gonna be a woman and she's gonna be an archer and she's gonna have an important sounding job title and they don't check to see like, is she actually integral to the story? Are all of these strengths that she ostensibly has things that she gets to demonstrate and is she used as anything other than a love interest even though we say how often, very often how important her job is and how vital and crucial she is. And I really like Padme in theory, but I think often she has that same problem where yeah. like, oh no, my shirt ripped and it's all sexy, <laughs> but at least that cat isn't going to kill me. Like she doesn't even get to, I think, finish off the cat yeah. that's attacking her up the thing. And I, like Leia would have gotten that with one shot. I, I think it's actually Anakin who comes in on the beast he's riding and like knocks the cat over. Yeah. No, which it, it's, that's not the biggest problem, but it does sort of speak to how she's being used, which is it's like even though she's cool, even though we don't get to see her founding the rebellion, that scene got cut. So all of these times when, based on the fact that she's the youngest queen ever elected, which question mark, what's Naboo doing? <laughs> what is Naboo doing? Just general question. <laughs> what, what's the Gungan assembly up to right now? Yeah, did the Gungans participate in this election? Is she just queen of the surface? Exactly. Is there a scandal going on at Naboo? Yeah, is Odo Gunga, like, are they... Um, <laughs> What's their representative system going down there? Exactly. We demand questions, George Lucas. Yeah. <laughs> we never got to the bottom of Boss Nass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about The Force Awakens now and that sort of representation in Rey. Which I think it's fascinating how there's been such a backlash. Like, to me, Rey herself, she's just a typical standard issue like Luke. If Luke didn't have any friends ever <laughs> and just was lonely on a planet developing skills for <laughs> a entire youth <laughs> and I like how the, the clever visual telling of having her cross off another day on this yeah. planet full of many I always exes. cry during that scene. I love her space muffin, though. Oh, yeah, her space muffin. And you know that was actually real? How did they make that? I, I forget exactly, but it was some sort of yeast uh, combined with other ingredients. And you just put water on it and... I remember Daisy Ridley saying it tasted very spongy, <laughs> sort of like that. Or actually, she said it tasted good as well. So I'll need to look that up. That's again. amazing. Why are they not selling that in the gift shop of everywhere? Because I, know, I would definitely right? buy a space muffin. Exactly. Um, so who's your favorite female Star Wars character? The one you take most inspiration from as well. I mean, Leia, hands Leia, down. Yeah. And my favorite... And it also sort of bled into, over into Carrie Fisher, who every single time I see either see Rogue One or just sort of think casually about Star Wars, I'm like, gosh, dang it, yeah. uh, Carrie Fisher. So, yeah, we, we need to talk about this. When did you first hear the news, and what was your reaction? Well, it's, it's, it's also, it's, it's funny that we're like, when did you hear, this is so sad, but because she was such a big part of both of our lives as Star Wars fans, I'm... I, I feel like it's not a weird, be like, you have ownership over this celebrity. But yeah, sorry, Carrie, uh, for d demanding giant chunks of your life. But no, I was in uh, Indiana with my grandma and family, and it was like just after uh, Christmas, and we were all sitting there. And everyone had thought that like George Michael had thrown himself on the unexploded 2016 death toll, that maybe we'd all make it out without losing Carrie Fisher as well. And then I got a series of texts from all of my friends who know what a big Star Wars junkie I am saying, no, and I thought, oh no, that, that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, you had heard about the heart attack before. Yeah. Right? So I started sort of <laughs> working and thinking about, because I'm like, well, if she makes it through, then there's never a better time to write an appreciation just to 
have that on record because I always wanted to start a blog that was just like cool people who are still alive because <laughs> whenever you just yeah. have to see it you know it's sad that it's only in the obituaries that you notice how cool these folks were I mean I think that's a very slight silver lining is that so many more people are waking up to how amazing Carrie Fisher was in her writing in her screenplay writing in her activism um, I think more people are buying her books now. Yeah. Like, have you have you ever read Wishful Drinking? For yes. Example? Yeah, and I loved it. I, I actually saw her do the show too. Oh, nice! Oh, it was hilarious. She came to DC. I, for, I forget which theater. It was either the Lincoln or the Howard, I think. And oh, it was hilarious. Yeah, she was just so unique. What did just tell me generally what Carrie Fisher in her own life and her own actions meant to you? You know, I guess everything separate from Leia. And that. It, because I think separate from Leia, it, it was funny how she both, her whole life was defined by being part of this mythology, but she also was very good at puncturing the mythology in, yeah. and letting you in behind the scenes. Because I think really she has had a writer's mind that you don't, most people born as celebrities aren't also incredibly gifted writers who can write classic novels that like when Meryl Streep plays you in a movie, you know that you're a capable storyteller and that you've had an interesting story. And so just the phrases that she had and the humor she had and the way she was able to say, like, here's the behind the scenes story of why there's no bras in space. <laughs> because George Lucas said, well, you'd be strangled by, because there's no gravity. And she's like, let it be known that I died in moonlight strangled by my own bra. Which, what a wonderful epitaph. But also just having somebody in there with that eye for detail and that ability to tell this story in such a hilarious way and sort of share that experience with everyone, I thought it was a tremendous gift. Yeah, I mean, Leia wasn't badass, or Carrie Fisher wasn't badass because she played Princess Leia. Um, Leia was badass because she was played by Carrie Fisher. I think to a great extent, that's very true. Yeah. Yeah, she lived an incredible life and left so many lessons for all of us. I mean, I'll will say firsthand, she made me a feminist since I was nine years old and saw a new hope for the first time, just like you were saying earlier, just seeing a woman be just as good as, if not better than the guys, it just became ingrained in my mind that this was normal. Yeah. This is something hugely important for all of us. Um so, but we did talk about how, um, you know, you did mention about the underwear. I'm curious, <laughs> like, do you believe there is underwear in space? Oh man. I mean, I trust George Lucas to the extent that George Lucas also created that Truman Capote sounding slug from the Clone Wars feature like animated prequel, oh, yeah. which is my favorite weird Star Wars <laughs> thing. Cause the Clone Wars then turned out to be quite good, but there right. was that two hour feature length animated preview that included Zero the Hutt, who was purple and spoke like Truman Capote and did not speak Hutties, and it was George Lucas's idea. So uh, with the caveat that he also gave us Zero the Hutt, I trust him to know his universe um, and Watto. He gave us a lot of things, but yeah. I guess you can't wear underwear in space, George. Yeah, I, I guess that's just it. Yeah. This is, the, this is our final insight. You can't wear underwear in space. No underwear. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I've kept you for long enough, but Alexander, this was so, so great. This is super fun. Thank you. Like, uh, could you tell us uh, where people can find you online? Yes, I'm at the Washington Post. The URL is washingtonpost.com slash blogs slash compost. But really just just Google me. It's easier. Uh, And I'm on Twitter at Petri, Petri Dishes, which... 
if I wonder why people can't pronounce my name, I, it's because I'm sabotaging myself and I recognize that. But yeah, <laughs> check it out. Yes, Petri spelled P-E-T-R-I. Like the dish. Like the dish, exactly. All right, well, thank you guys. This has been another in the interview series of Beltway Banthas, and may the force be with you. And also Always. with you. Oh. oh, and also with you, with all of us. Always. Exactly. Always. <laughs>